I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Oh, hi. It's the crusty plant you never suspected would thrive. Allie Ward, I'm here. I'm here with you. I'm here with us. Let us ologize. Okay, it's September. It's the time of year when people in Los Angeles pray for a day that dips into the 60s so we can wear a scarf and drive 90 minutes to find an orchard to pretend fall exists. I've no, I've done it. I've cried looking at gourds. So we're getting into the beverage that is the apple of our eyes, cider. What is it? How old is it? Which ones are delicious heavenly nectar and which ones taste like butts? We have answers for you. So this guest is the leading cider expert on planet Earth, and he calls himself like accurately the ciderologist. He has had his hands in or around cider for over 15 years, having brewed and judged and championed and even taught cider courses at the Beer and Cider Academy of London. He has authored two books on the topic, the 2018 debut Ciderology, From History and Heritage to the Craft Cider Revolution, and just released a week ago a follow-up called Modern British Cider. So he also co-hosts a cider podcast, Neutral Cider Hotel, and he is lovely and passionate about cider and speaks of it with such mustachioed enthusiasm. But before we meet him, you can be a patron, just FYI, at patreon.com slash ologies. A buck a month lets you submit questions to experts like this. For no money, you can rate us on your podcast app, if you don't mind. And for my undying affection, you can leave a review because I read all of them and I prove it with a just juiced, foaming, freshy. So this week, thank you to Mohope16, who wrote, recently I needed to hire an employee. My favorite ending interview question is, what are you a nerd about? One of the candidates began listing topics of the most recent episodes, and I asked them if they listened to Ologies, and they said it's their favorite podcast. That's all I needed to know in order to hire them. Whoa, Mohope16, I hope you start Merch Mondays at the office. Ologiesmerch.com. Okay, Ciderology. Cider comes from the Hebrew sekar for strong drink. And this ologist is the guy when you Google cider expert. He's the dude. His mustache and his book comes up and he will happily talk to you about cider for as long as you want, which is why this interview was like pulling up to a picnic table with an old friend I had just never met. So please belly up and prepare for a crisp cup of appley knowledge from the history of cider, how wars impacted cider demand, dipping babies into booze, frankentrees, glass vessels, what made Queen Elizabeth scowl at him, how to DIY cider, plenty of flimflam, and the best cider we've ever sipped with ciderology author, podcaster, and beloved international ciderologist, 
Gabe Cook. I am very well, thanks, Sally. How's it going with you? You sound great. It's almost as if you have your own podcast or something. It's almost as if I invested (laughs) in a modest priced mic. What a professional. Well, you're making my job too easy. Um, Hardest question I'm going to ask, can you say your first and last name and then also whatever pronouns you use? Yes, uh, my name is Gabe Cook and I am uh, uh, he, him. Cool. Cool beans, and you're a ciderologist. I am the ciderologist. Oh, I didn't realize the article was so definitive. <clears throat> Thank you very How much. How long have you been, capital T, capital C, uh, the ciderologist? As, as a full-time <laughs> profession, a little over four years. I imagine that you were a very enthusiastic dilettante before that, right? I, I was. Um, <laughs> I, I I was using ciderologist um, as my email address for a about since about oh i think about 2008 or something like that so the idea and the concept of the ologist of cider had been around for a while but it, it took a while for it to become fully fledged and for you know for it to actually <laughs> become um a career as it were the ciderologist is my is my company it's my brand name it's trademarked in europe get your hands off nobody has tested it <laughs> That was a waste of 250 quid, wasn't it? My role within the cider industry is to be a vocal champion because, you know, cider doesn't always get the love or the appreciation or the awareness of other drinks. Agreed. There's entire industries based around the the specialized knowledge and, and serving of beer and of wine. We've got sommeliers. We've got fantastic servers. We've got critics. We've got writers. I am to my knowledge, the world's only full-time independent cider advocate. Just for context, I'm team cider all the way. I have been since I turned of cider sipping age, which is a debatable age, as you will find out later in the episode. But despite our 2018 episode on zymology, which is the science of beer brewing, I have finished exactly one beer in my whole life, and I did not like it. I don't like beer. I'm sorry. I would be happy to appear on a debate team or a mock trial tournament representing cider. Fight me. I'm ready. Cider sits in this really interesting and unique space. First of all, Mm -hmm. you make cider like you make a wine. You do not brew cider. Brewing is the application of heat to extract something, normally like sort of sugars or these kind of characters. That's why you brew uh, beer. That's why you brew tea and coffee, etc. You make cider, okay, like you're making wine. This is taking a fruit, in this case apples, rather than grapes. You're squeezing mm-hmm. them. You're extracting the juice, which is sugar-rich, really, really easily, readily fermentable sugars. Yeast, whether they be wild yeast or introduced yeast, convert that sugar into alcohol so Mm -hmm. in the same way that the selection of the apple variety the yeast strain the vessel that you ferment in how long you mature it under what conditions you you undertake all this process that is what is going to give you um, this unique range of different sort of flavors and styles of cider that can exist but the fact is that over the course of the last sort of 50 60 years cider has been predominantly tweaked and made and certainly packaged and presented 
considerably more like a beer. You know, the, the, the average alcohol content is closer to your average beer, whatever that is, than let's say an average wine. It's mm-hmm. normally carbonated. It comes, you know, uh, on tap. You can have it as a pint. It comes as a single serve bottle or can. These are all cues very readily associated with beer, but it is its own unique, wonderful and amazing drink. And it's got so many awesome things going for it. Such as? Firstly, it's naturally gluten-free. So anybody who's who's off the gluten, you know, as a lifestyle choice or because it's been, you know, really beneficial for their health, naturally gluten-free. Unlike a considerable proportion of beers and wines out there which use animal-based fining agents in order to reduce, sort of take out sort of clarity and certain like phenolic and, and other kind of characters, cider is very, very easily clarified and there's no need for those kind of fining agents. So it's almost to a T will be vegan friendly as well. Wait, the stuff they use to clarify beer isn't vegan? I looked this up and apparently fining agents can include, you ready for this, egg whites, milk, desiccated fish bladders, and blood. Bottoms up. Perhaps that's a big decider for vegans. You know, it's just this most amazing drink. There is, I say, Ali, a cider for everybody. And it's just trying to get people knowledgeable and enthused about it. Hello? I've lost you. So yes, a leprechaun put a curse on me via a loose mic cable. So in the lull, Gabe, ciderologist, cracked open a cold one as I sorted out my tech diffs. Dude is truly living his best life. Get ready for some ASMR. Now that's a good sound, right? Come on. That's awesome. And you know what? I'm going to have a sip. Ah, that's good. I think I have um, a loose cable. Uh, you know, even the microphone is overwhelmed by the awesome <laughs> power of the cider, you see? Who knew that ciderology was so powerful? Oh, Fantastic. my God. Okay, mic cable fixed. On we go. So to recap, cider is wine. The legal definition of wine is any alcoholic beverage obtained by the fermentation of the natural sugar content of fruits or other agricultural products, like honey. So I repeat, cider is wine. Cider's wine. It's a type of wine, really. But Gabe had mentioned that he hails from a part of the UK that has a rich and bubbly cider history, and that geographically, cider is cool because it tends to be very location-based, like wines, whereas beers can have hops and grain from all over the damn world. Also, did he intend to make this a beer versus cider episode? No, but that's just my transparent pro-cider agenda seeping through. What? I love cider. Cider deserves more love. And another really crucial aspect is, from a sustainability point of view, is that, you know, the way that you're making cider, it doesn't, you know, in, in its most basic, not most basic form, like like the fantastic cider that I'm drinking and the ciders that I make and ciders I've been involved with and ciders I champion, you get apples, you squeeze them, it ferments. That's it? That's it? Unlike, you know, with the brewing process where there's a huge amount of energy is needed to to heat this liquid 
um, to get you know the enzyme change for the for the sugars, and then obviously when you're boiling it as well, and if you're making a lager, you then need to chill it right down as well. There's a lot of energy, and this is an important thing for uh, in, in, you know consumers increasingly today. And then when it comes to the orchards, these magical, magical places, even if they are really kind of commercial and uh, commercial orchards, they are still considerably better land uses than monocultures of wheat or maize. Um, they support biodiversity. They are sucking carbon and locking it into the ground. They're fantastic places for people to socialize as well, whether that be for walking the dog or going for a run or just a bit of mindfulness and peacefulness and tranquility learning new skills community cohesion there's just there's just so much it's just lush oh my god i was just prepared to like shit talk beer because it tastes bad but you're like no you those are really nah, valid points you see see <laughs> this is like really good cider, you know if if, <laughs> if 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 we're being really really stereotypical here you could say that the attitude you know spirits and let's say whiskey become uh, things as sort of you know uh very quite sort of gentrified and sits in their wing back chair and wine comes in all sort of like elegant and, and and kind of fun and beer is kind of like cool and brash cider we're just the we're just the, <laughs> like the we're just the nice people in the corner actually often quite shyder it's like yeah i'm beer it's like yeah hi i'm i'm cider how's it going yeah yeah and and it's it's because it does sort of sit as this slightly sort of not lost or forgotten drink but you know it, it's not it's just not as broadly understood and so cider's general way or maybe that's just my way is that don't need to bad talk those other drinks i like beer <laughs> um i used to make wine in new zealand they're, they're really really cool drinks it's just it's just giving cider this this platform that it that it can be an absolute equal to any of those drinks all of the character all of the attitude all of the elegance all of the finesse it's yeah trying to get past certainly from a uk point of view a lot of old stereotypes which are generally quite negative associated with cider for various me uh various reasons uh, you know on your side of the pond it's more a case of you know what is cider or the confusion between you know unfermented fresh press sort of farm juice the, the cider versus the hard cider but hard is the you know the usa is the only nation in the world that uses the prefix of hard so that really? you're trying to, yeah absolutely this is all it's all a prohibition thing Oh, I didn't know that. There is a very, very long history of cider associated with the USA. Uh, and it generally, it, you know, it comes with founding fathers, which isn't necessarily something that is always as boldly celebrated as it might have been once before. But it is a fact that cider really was the first commercial drink of, you know, the the new colony within the within the far northeast of the US. And huge amounts of cider was made, made in you know, in Connecticut and in Maine and in Vermont and and then in New York and Pennsylvania, lots of cider was made, and it was only really with the introduction, of the the big wave in the sort of the end of the 18th century and into the 19th century of um, Czech and German immigrants that beer really started to come in and gain a real stronghold all across all across uh, the states. Ah. And and when prohibition came in in 1920, um, unlike you know, beer and sort of like moonshine went underground and hid in the sheds and things like that. It's quite hard to hide an orchard. So they, <laughs> so they got burnt, you know, a lot of them got burnt like or chopped or burnt down. And those that were left 
were eating apples because the you know those apples that were being grown then like the apples that are grown in the western parts of England northern parts of France and northern parts of Spain are would be called cider apples by by people in those areas these are varieties grown specifically for the sole purpose of making cider and have been done so for hundreds of years so they got rid of all of those what that was left were there's the eating apples which a bit of juice was made from and so the term cider got appropriated to mean that sort of fresh pressed juice. So when prohibition came to an end in the 30s and booze and cider, you know, fermented cider was allowed, they needed a new name. So they added the prefix of hard and hard cider. And that's how that has come to pass. But nowhere else in the world um, needed or had the, you know, the cultural heritage as to why that was uh, a necessity. So, yes, if you clicked on this episode and thought that it would be all about Martinelli's or cloudy apple juice from the farmer's market. Blame prohibition, not me. Now, in the 1800s, cider was the most popular beverage in the U.S. The century before that, 1700s, people in the colonies drank on average a barrel a year each. So that's a pint a day for everyone. Everyone had a pint a day. And really quick, let's have a rundown of types of cider. So there's farmhouse cider, which is pretty much like what you could make if you were stranded on an island with just apples and jars. It's fermented juice, pretty dry because the yeast has gobbled up all the sugars and it's not super sparkly. Now you can make a farmhouse cider with nothing but raw apple juice and about a week or two worth of patience and a lot of thirst. So draft cider is what you're used to seeing on restaurant menus. It's clear, maybe cut with juice to lower a high alcohol content. It's sweet, it's sparkly, it's kind of like a soda pop. And then there's French cidre, which is a little more complex, and it involves a process called keeving, which we're going to get into in a bit. It has a low alcohol content, and you drink it out of a beret. That's not true. But let's back up. Well, what about before that? Had cider or you know, fermented apple juice existed long, long before that? I mean, is it called cider if an apple just rots on the ground and it's kind of boozy? At what point did we start understanding what cider was? It's an interesting one. You know, apples as we know them for eating and making cider and cooking and all those kinds of things, the the ancestor of that can be traced back to the Tian Shan mountain range which sort of sits sort of just to the northwest of the himalayas on the sort of chinese kazakh kyrgyzstani kind of border at the end of the ice age last ice age ten thousand years ago in these valleys in the foothills of these incredible mountains you 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 had then the last sort of refuges of these wild apple forests which when the ice age came came to an end uh, and everything got a little bit warmer they started to flourish and, and grow a little bit but it also coincided with also you know humans also flourishing and growing and you know, undertaking this amazing you know transcontinental uh, journey from the east to the west along the Silk Road, and wow. so people and animals started to pick up these apples and take them along the way, and they'd eat and they'd poop, and it would pips would go on the ground, and the sort of the apples started to get taken west, and it underwent this amazing sort of um, you know genetic sort of diversity kind of like journey along the way, because if you plant the pip of an apple of let, let's say uh, uh what's your favorite eating apple ali oh say. my gosh i would probably say i'm gonna go granny smith i'm just granny gonna smith. go super tart don't judge me yeah yeah lovely lovely and crisp lovely and zingy awesome if you planted a pip from a granny smith into the ground the apple variety that will pop up will be guaranteed to not be granny smith right okay so this is grafting 
Is this exactly. the magic of grafting? Okay. It is. It is. Imagine that the like that you've you've got like the mother tree, that Granny Smith tree gives that fruit and it's got the pip inside, but they're not self-fertile. In order to be able to produce that fruit, you have to have pollen from another variety, often brought over by uh, pollinating insects like the wonderful bees. That's why we love bees very, very much. Um, they bring over the pollen on their legs. It pollinates the blossom. That turns into the apple and the pip inside has got the, the, the genetics, the DNA of both the, the mother tree, that Granny Smith, and whatever um, pollinated it. It won't be the variety that you've got. And so this obviously is a little bit of a problem yeah. if, if you really like Granny Smith and you want to continue. So this is when the Mesopotamians circa three something thousand years ago just somehow worked out that if you snip the end off um, a growing tip and, you know, fuse it onto something that's already into the ground, they will hold and it will take and you can have one tree, two different varieties or intended variety at the top and the rootstock at the bottom. Can you imagine if you were like, wow, I really like my kid but who knows what the hell kind of grandkids I might have. So then you just hacked off their limb and sewed it onto another body? Some apple rootstock trees straight up get the chop mid-trunk, and then they get a new head grafted on, which if that's not horticultural gore fit for spooky season, I don't know what the hell is. The idea of sort of cultivating apples has been around for a long time, but the evidence of actually making cider probably about 2000 years old there's first sort of talks in sort of you know in the greek literature and the roman literature about about references to cider making or like the wine of apples and pears things like that whereas wine you know very strong evidence of that being made considerably further back the primary difference is around the structure of grapes and apples Mm-hmm. Think about grapes, they're lovely and small and lovely and soft. And, you know, you want to extract the juice and you could literally do that by treading them underfoot. And lots of people do still that today. You try treading some apples and you're going to get some fairly bruised feet quite quickly, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, it's this, it's this really strong cell structure. What cider still needs today is it's a two-step process. You don't just press apples. You have to mill the apples first. This mill can do the same amount of work that took many nights with my juicer in simply a matter of hours. The crusher works by spinning tines that grab the apples and mash them through a set of blades. And then you've got to press them. So this extra bit of technology that was needed to turn these solid apples into something mushy enough that you could then easily extract the juice from, that didn't really come around until sort of olive milling technology was also developed around about 2,000 years ago and sort of shared into that sort of Mediterranean area around that time. Just a side note, I looked it up. Milling is just crushing up the apples any which way you can. People do this with various levels of force. Some just smash apples with mallets in what looks like a wooden bathtub, or you can bean apples with a stone wheel dragged by a horse or a donkey or something. There's also mechanical mills, and they chew the apples into a really fine pulp. And then all that apple mash has to be squeezed until it cries delicious juice. And sometimes that's done in sacks. It used to be strained through straw. No, thank you. Now, what happens to that giant cake of compressed apple pulp? What do you do with it? Can you sit on it like a cushion? Maybe. That's not my business. But it gets fed to livestock. You can also do a second wash and make a really weak cider with it. But it's called apple mash. But it's also called, according to our friend Workipedia, cake math Pows, Muir, or Pomage. So who knew cider making came with such a big frothy mug of slang? Not me. But 
Back to history. So cider's been around for centuries because yeast and sugar are like, please let us do our thing. If you just leave us alone for a bit, we'll get you drunk. So written history through the ages is kind of spotty, but there's evidence that Charlemagne was into orcharding as a verb. And by Charlemagne, I mean the king of the Franks in the Dark Ages, not the breakfast club radio host Charlemagne the God, who was born Leonard McKelvey. And from what I can tell, he does not mill cider apples. You got to break it in pieces, bro. Why? <laughs> it's just a fruit. Okay, back to history. It seems that the first records of sort of making cider come from the 1100s, but it's really not until kind of like the 1500s and especially the 1600s when cider reaches its zenith in the UK as a as a drink that is heralded as being the the, the equal to wine and is drunk um, uh, with the aristocracy and indeed at the table of kings and queens. What happened in the 1600s? Was Did someone have like a TikTok go viral? Like why? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, sadly, not as entertaining as that. It comes down to something that is ever prevalent, which is war. Um, Britain being pretty strong warmongers at the time, um, you know, fighting with Europe for, for basically a millennia. Um, and yeah, in this sort of early part of the 17th century, Britain was at war with large parts of Europe and it prevented the importation of wine into into the UK. And the aristocracy got very thirsty and a little bit agitated <laughs> that they couldn't have their fine wine. And so there was a bit of a movement uh, amongst these, um, uh, they were called the ciderists. And these were people of prominence within society, whether they be landowners, MPs, scientists, clergy, people, knowledgeable people and people with money and power, basically. And so they identified that cider could be our native wine, effectively, which, which, you know, it kind of is, if you think about it as being something that you make, you know, like a wine. And that coincided with a chap called Lord Scudamore. He identified a particular variety that was growing on his estates. It produced an apple and a cider that was just gorgeous, really intense, and it was a really precocious tree. And it was amazing. And it was called the Herefordshire Red Streak. Oh. And also, at the same time, what was happening was there was a chap not too many miles away on the banks of the of the River Severn and the Forest of Dean, and he was into um, glass uh, furnaces and making glass, and he was interested in making strengthened glass. His name was Sir Kenham Digby, and he was using these extra hot furnaces uh, by using charcoal um, and burning really hot, and he was making these bottles that were really thick and really strong, so strong, in fact, that you could put some of this amazing new cider that was on the scene into there. And as the record books show, adding a walnut's worth of sugar into it, putting a lid on the top, and then putting it somewhere nice and cool in the cellar, burying it into sand, even into some little streams running into the estate. And basically what was happening was a secondary fermentation in the bottle. We are talking about the, the first step of the method traditionnel, the champagne method. Oh. Now, crucially... This a paper. This paper was presented to the Royal Society on the tenth of December, sixteen sixty-two, and this is about seven years before Dom Perignon, who is thought to be, you know, the the creator, the godfather of mastering the champagne process, before he had even started his work at the winery. So, what I'm basically saying mm -hmm. is that it shouldn't be called the champagne <laughs> method. It should be called. <laughs> The English method. Come on, England. <laughs> and so that secondary fermentation is you've already got a little bit of alcohol in the cider and then it kind of double ferments and that's what causes the effervescence and the higher alcohol 
Uh, That's right. You've undertaken one fermentation in in a um, a tank, a barrel. You've placed it into a bottle. You've then added some extra sugar, and there will still be some yeast, uh, you know, live yeast with within that cider. Today, those people who are making you know method traditionnel style ciders, or indeed those wines, would add some yeast back as well with the sugar and maybe even some nutrients to ensure that yes, there is indeed a second fermentation in that bottle but of course carbon dioxide is the byproduct of of fermentation you know sugar gets converted by yeast into alcohol and carbon dioxide normally the carbon dioxide um, is released into the atmosphere in this case it gets trapped into the bottle and that's what provides the natural sparkle that's and that's why you know you get these lovely little small fine bubbles this fine mousse and it gets trapped in there and depending upon how you're making it you can either have just a very light effervescence or you can actually create quite a strong pressure in there which is why you need that cork and that wire to to hold um to hold the liquid in what is the best glass or bowl or cup of cider you've ever had in your life oh man that's 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 tough i will certainly say that uh i went on it will be 19 years ago to the to the day almost I, I so I grew up in this little village called Dimmock. I always got to give a shout out to Dimmock. Go Dimmock, uh-huh. and which which is in Gloucestershire, and it's yeah, it's in this amazing old traditional sort of heartland area. And I grew up knowing that there was a cider thing around, and it was my first drink, um, and sort of tried some of the mainstream ciders. And then there's a biggish cider maker in the village next door called Westons in Muchmarkle, just next door, and went and tried their ciders and visited, and really tasty. And then my my eldest brother and I we wanted to go and visit some of the the farmhouse makers, the small traditional producers around. And so we looked on the map and there was one just a few miles away. And so we, we went to visit and he was driving and we, we, we turned off the main road and suddenly we're down a lane. Uh, I don't know whether you get them in the USA, but it's one of the great things about, about the rural areas of the UK. You've got these old lanes and trackways that have been there for a thousand years. And they're so narrow that you're driving along and both wing mirrors are getting whacked by the hedge <laughs> at the same time. Quack, 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 quack. And we're like, where the fuck? Are where are we? This is like, we just turned off the main road and we're like, we're expecting Frodo to like run across the road. Hello, good morning. Um, and suddenly there's a tiny little sign that pointing to the right saying, cider. And so we follow that um, and we end up going up a driveway and pulling in and there's like this big white farmhouse and we sort of walk up and there's a, there's a door sort of like almost like underneath the house. And there's a little chalk written sign uh, note on there that says, pull string for cider and indeed there's a little bit of baler twine you know a little bit of orange mm-hmm. string which we duly give a bit of a yank on and suddenly ding ling ling the bell goes and this very cheery genial sort of looking uh chap pops his head out and says hello i'll come down and serve you now and his name is mike mike johnson the proprietor of the ross and y cider and perry company and he opens the door and we're looking into the old cellar of this 17th century farmhouse with giant stone flags on the ground and these barrels racked up. And the smell that comes out is all sort of, you know, earthy and musty and it feels like it's been there for forever. And we go in and he goes to one of the barrels, which has got a tap on it, and he gives it a pour and he hands it to me and goes, here you go. This is uh, a dry cider. Enjoy. And... I can remember the sensation <laughs> of tasting that. If, even if I can't quite remember the taste, the sensation of just going, I've never tasted anything like this. I like it quite a lot. This is just fermented apple juice, but you know, it's not just fermented apple juice. There's care, there's attention. You could almost taste 
you know the the age the antiquity it was a little bit of the stars aligning moment and realized that mm-hmm. cider could brought together all the things that i was interested in i was interested in local history interested in in wildlife interested in in local culture quite enjoyed booze as well and that cider was able to just bring all these things together so that was a that was a pretty critical um cider to taste i would say uh, have you been back or is it something that you want to exist only in memory no, uh, it, it, w- it was only the start. I actually ended up working there. That was what <laughs> really kick-started my cider journey. I spent about best part of nine months or so living on the farm, quite literally in a shed in the garden. Wow! Um, and and I learned the sort of the the the, the craft of of making traditional western county style of cider and learning about these varieties i was taught about the different characters the acidity the tannin so the the astringency the bitterness the mouthfeel the texture the fruitiness the potential faults that could come through this was just sort of just learnt through through drinking and talking and sharing and an amazing and a privileged experience Yes, I looked this up and I want to live there, please. It's called Broom Farm and it's this white brick farmhouse in rural England. It's also set up as a bed and breakfast. So you can stay in the orchard suite or the cider suite. And according to their website, they love visitors and they will, quote, happily take you on a detailed tour of the orchards and then give you a toured cider tasting, introducing you to our enormous range of bottled cider and perry. I'll put a link on my website in case you want to go to heaven without having to die first. And I was camping in the orchard there three days ago. So it's still a very important part of my life. And Mike's son, Albert, he's come into the business and he's taking it on to the next step. But they really are one of the, they're one of the, they're one of the goodies. So, so no, it's still very much an important part of my life. And, and yeah, it kickstarted my career in cider. I went to work for Westerns, who today are the fifth biggest producer in the UK. So I went from making cider in you know, 200 liter oak fats to 200,000 liter stainless oh steel tanks, which was terrifying, especially <laughs> when, you know, when, when you dribble a bit down the side of the barrel, you know, no, no bother. When you dribble a bit down the side of a, you know, a 50 foot tank and the, and your boss is calling you, it's like, hey, why is cider, you know, spurting out of the top of this yeah. tank in a, in a bit of a fountain <laughs> fashion? I don't have such a good riposte to that. So, <laughs> but I took what I learned from the small farm uh, and applied it to the big scale, and 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 it really and it set me fair. And I'm really proud of of, of the ciders that I made and what I achieved. But I did come to realise I was better at talking about cider rather than making it. And oh. so, <laughs> I got a job with the world's biggest cider maker, Bulmers. And yeah, I was there, a cider communications manager for nigh on three years, which was really cool. I got to do awesome stuff with local community. And the highlight was in 2012, I got to present a bottle of cider to Her Majesty the Queen. Come again? What did you wear? Did you wear your mustache, number one? It was pre-mustache, actually. I, I, was, I was young and clean-shaven back then. I had on, I had, I'd say, the best suit, the only suit that I had. I was quite a country, I mean, still I'm a bit of a country bumpkin, but I was especially country bumpkin. A little bit like a shaved monkey in a suit, to, to be <laughs> fair. It's a bit awkward. Hello! Hello, Your Majesty. And somebody took some photos, very kindly. I gave him my camera. Um, and there's like two or three great photos. And I literally had about 20 seconds to present her with a special commemorative bottle of cider. And it was all linked in that it was her Diamond Jubilee, her 60 mm-hmm. years. And it was the Bulmer's 125th anniversary. And would you believe in the year that the company was started, that was Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee as well. And I was telling this enthralling story. And the photo of me presenting it to her 
Her Majesty's face, I, I don't know. It, it, she looks like I've said something really offensive or like I've done a poo on her shoe or something like that. It, she's not giving me <laughs> no. a great look. I think she said, thank you very much. And that was about it. Um, so, Your Majesty, if you're listening, I really apologize. I didn't mean to offend you. I know that you're more of a sort of vermouth than, you know, maybe martini, but, you know, give cider a go sometime. Give it a chance. Give it a chance. <laughs> Of course I found this photo, and I will confirm, she does have an expression as if she has received a poo on her shoe. But being the good little Google goblin that I am, I found another shot of their encounter, taken probably a millisecond later by the same photographer, and Her Majesty is smiling grandly. So I am surmising that she was just listening intently. But yes, she is known to drink Bulmer's cider. In addition, I found this out today, she drinks Bacardi which I hope she enjoys via room temperature shots, followed by a Diet Pepsi chaser or something just equally hideous and appalling. So speaking of shot glasses, there are very specific glasses for different wines and different Mm. martinis and even different beers. And I've always wondered, I think some of the my most memorable cider I've had out of bowls in France, I think was yes. the first time I had a good cider. It tasted like a tiger lily and it. I had been up mm-hmm. all night. I had just taken a red eye in to Paris and the first and only time I've been and I had crepes and a bowl of this really floral tasting cider. But what is the proper vessel? How should we be drinking cider? That is a bit of a difficult one. There are some traditional vessels very closely linked to those kind of regional things. You talked about the bolle, which is very closely associated with uh, Brittany, especially in the western part of Germany. In Hessen, they use a glass called the Geripta, which has got all these sort of crisscrosses on them. In in Asturias and in the Basque country of northern Spain, there's a, they use particular kind of very broad-brimmed glasses. Forgive me, I've forgotten the name, but this really, really thin glass just look up Spanish cider glass. I think they're just called cidra glasses. That's Spanish for cider. And in northern Spain, they pour the cider from over their heads down into the glass. It's like a human fountain. does look a little like pee. But yes, elegant, wide-mouthed, thin-walled cidra glasses is what they're called. For when you're doing this amazing high cider pouring, cider throwing into the glass is a really important cultural thing. In in Britain, in certain parts, we would have the earthenware two-handled mug. Mm. Generally, the larger the better, I suspect, so you get more cider in. But cider doesn't it's what this is this is one of the challenges and potentially opportunities that cider finds itself in right now, is that cider hasn't had any of the lexicon any of the language that that wine and beer have had everyone knows different you know styles of beer everyone can talk about ipa or a stout or a saison or something like that and in terms of wine you all know whether it be particular sort of like regions so bordeaux or a chianti or something like that Gabe says that in modern culture, it's common to rattle off all kinds of varieties of other beverages. And just like how different beers and wines call for different kind of vessels, cider could use those as well. But people don't care. And they should, because cider is just sitting in the corner. It's being chill and cool, like your friend who's so awesome, but somehow single because they're shy. Everyone is sleeping on how complex and interesting cider is. And Gabe is its most charming and vocal wingman. These are all things that are entirely new. And I really hope that somebody sees an opportunity to create these kind of cider glasses and to do that research mm-hmm. because it's just all adding to 
the kind of professionalism associated with cider and trying to get it really, really well known and respected and loved. So there's glass makers out there. Come on, do it. I love the, I also love the idea of an earthenware mug. I mean, come on. But I have also some questions about just the, the tech specs, right? So Mm. what are the tech specs of cider? Does it have to be apple or can it be pear or raspberry or whatever? And also how much alcohol by volume does it have to be to be a cider versus a pressed or a fresh squeezed apple juice that you might get, you know, on a crisp fall day at an orchard? Yeah. So cider really is the where you know a drink that is where the alcohol um is derived from the fermentation of apple juice. In terms of the fermented pear, the the, the traditional name for that where I'm from is called perry, or if you're in um France it would be poire. No, pear cider um as a term in the UK that is a synonym for perry. In the USA, that is a fermented apple drink with pear juice added as a flavoring. So there we go. But for like like a fermented pear drink really should be kind of could be called Perry in the UK. Pear cider is used. Some people like it. Some people don't. I'm I'm not too kind of hung up on it. The most important thing is that you've got to have this fermented apple or in, or potentially fermented pear. You can't ferment a raspberry and call it a raspberry cider. <laughs> You can't ferment a rhubarb or a potato or or or, or bark and you know call it anything X cider. That isn't cider, and it is one of the things that cider needs to kind of try and protect. You know, there's been an incredible proliferation of flavored ciders over the course of the last fifteen years in the UK, but it, that they are fermented apple juice with the addition of flavors of other things, predominantly fruits. Um, you know, berries especially. Hopped ciders is definitely something that is growing in popularity and 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 in the in the USA especially where it's been driven from, you know, sort of Pacific Northwest beer scene. But you can put like elderflowers and the kind of things in there in there too. A lot of people are really anti flavoured cider because they don't think them that they're like real or proper or it doesn't sit into a, like an old cultural heritage. I don't hold the same opinion as people. I'm not anti-flavored cider. I'm anti-shit cider. And the, <laughs> it's just that the majority of flavored ciders available, certainly in a UK, very sort of broad commercially, aren't great ciders. They're just not kind of great drinks. And they don't uphold the integrity, of, for me, of what kind of cider is. There are some spectacular ciders being made with the addition of other things to them in the UK and in the USA. Some some of the best drinks you can get, and they're fun and they're playful and they're creative, but the, fer- the fermentation of apple juice is at the absolute heart of this. And this, I think, goes on to answer your second point about, you know, when what's the average alcohol content? I mean, the average alcohol content is determined by how much sugar there is within the apples in the first place, which is determined by the variety, where you are in the world, and you know what's happening with the weather that kind of year as well. So, the sugar that can build up within an apple, depending upon those sort of three factors, generally is somewhere between about four and a half percent alcohol and about eight and a half percent alcohol. That's the broader kind of range. Okay. So, side note: the higher the alcohol, usually the drier the cider because the yeast has just gone to town eating the sugar and leaving you with alcohol as a metabolite. So sweet cider tends to be less than 3% alcohol. There's semi-dry, and then there's brute or dry, which is 4% alcohol or higher. But of course, more sugar can be added for a second fermentation 
or it can be made pretty strong and then diluted with more juice. Now, what about hot spiked cider? Is that a thing? Sure. It's just called wassail, and it's a spicy, apple-y, boozy winter beverage. Also, it's not coincidentally what you are to exclaim during a toast. But just don't call cider cider if it's not a little boozy. That's literally just apple juice. Full stop. In order for something to call it a non-alcoholic cider, cider is a fermented drink. So there has to be some form of fermented character in there. So, you know, low alcohol ciders are achieved normally by like diluting a fully formed cider with water and juice to, to, to take the alcohol level back down. Or you can use clever technology such as reverse osmosis or cool distillation to, to take away the alcohol kind of content. But they started their life as a cider. Apple juice is a great drink, but it is kind of juice. That's sort of the the sugar content and the the aromatic uh, and flavor characters that you get from juice. So there's something that you don't get in cider because those sugars and those characters have been converted to alcohol. Well, what then is apple cider vinegar? Is that apple cider that has just gone past the the sippy stage or is that a completely different beast altogether? No, you're absolutely right. So it's the it's the potential next stage of of kind of cider, I suppose, and and is the logical journey that if just completely left to its own devices, what the juice would want to do. So you start off with unfermented juice, you've pressed it, yeast will convert those sugars into alcohol. Um, once that fermentation has finished, if you kind of leave it and allow air exposure. There's all sorts of different kinds of bacteria that live all around. And one of them is called acetobacter. And it converts the alcohol into acetic acid, into vinegar. This may or may not be something that you desire. Although there are some sort of traditional parts of the Southwest where by the old farmhouse heritage, there was no sort of great care and attention, you know, put onto these kind of drinks. And they they would be referred to as scrumpy, sort of rough, raw, scratchy at the back of your throat kind of cider. But if you do just allow all the air to get to your cider, eventually the, the, the considerable majority of the alcohol that was in that does get converted into acetic acid, into vinegar, and it takes on a whole you know new life of its own. And you know certainly it is it's a massively popular thing from you know having all the health benefits and how you use it within sort of cooking and cuisine as well and and it's <laughs> it's brilliant i've got a google alert for the word cider i'd like to keep up to date what's happening in the <laughs> world of cider and what generally happens is about 500 apple cider vinegar kind of yeah. articles come up <laughs> and then right down the bottom will be you know a headline from a local newspaper you know, the Southampton Chronicles saying, you know, man arrested for drinking 19 liters of cider and trying to drive tractor into football <laughs> stadium or something like that. You know, it's like, oh, come on, cider, you can do this. You definitely need a Google alert for scrumpy because there can't be too many articles with that work. I do not. Ali, I'm going to try it and I will let you know. I'll give you an update. <laughs> Um, I'll also do ciderology and see what crops up as well. Please do. I have a feeling that yeah. just you will come up for both of those things. Maybe. <laughs> um, I have so many questions from patrons. Can I lightning round you? But before we strike gold with a lightning round, we will quickly give away some money to a cause of the ologist choosing. And this week, Gabe asked that it be made to Tiny Changes Foundation. And he says this was set up in memory of Scott Hutchinson, brother of my friend and fellow podcast host Grant, who sadly took his life three years ago. So that would mean a lot. Thank you, Gabe said. 
Tiny Changes is a mental health charity started in memory of the frightened rabbit musician Scott Hutchison, and it aims to offer mental health resources and support. So we're happy to make that donation in your name, Gabe. That donation was made possible by sponsors of the show, who you may hear about now. Allergies with Allie Ward is sponsored by Claritin. So luckily, for those that live with the symptoms of allergies, you can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This is designed for serious allergy sufferers, and Claritin D has two powerful ingredients and just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. It's this double action combination of prescription, strength allergy medicine, and the best decongestant available. Relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease just boom down the hatch you can get non-drowsy relief of allergy symptoms and with claritin d you can still make the most of your day without compromise or looking like you've been crying are you ready to live life as if you don't have allergies it's time to live claritin clear your pod mother jarrett terrible allergies and was recently shooting an indie movie that was filming in a house that had seven cats guess who's allergic to cats him so yeah we always have claritin in like each of our cars essentially claritin d is the third in our relationship. It's fast and powerful relief. It's just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And y'all know I have a little dog named Grammy, which is short for Gremlin. And y'all help me name her. And there's nothing that we like more than seeing her happy, which means tasty dog foods. And Merrick has been crafting high-quality dog food for over 30 years. They were founded in Hereford, Texas. But Grammy doesn't care about that. She cares about smushing her face in it and then licking the bowl. And I don't blame her because they use real ingredients and home-style recipes like real Texas beef and sweet potato or Grammy's pot pie. Grammy's like, Grammy's pot pie. Get away from it. It's mine. I also like that on the bag, they show what's in it. And they always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. And I think Remy appreciates that. So check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Yum, 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 yum. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kid busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. 
Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces that keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Okay, let's stop milling about and press on with your questions. Let's go. Okay, we're going to answer as many of these as possible. All right. I'm ready. You got this? Okay. Maria Joroveva, Catherine Gilbert, and Celia Labonte. All wanted to know, are ice ciders or ciders made from the apple picked in winter a true thing or is it just marketing? No, it's absolutely a true thing. It was originated in um, Quebec in about 1988, 1989 and takes its influence from the German ice winemaking. And yeah, you take frozen fruit or in sort of warmer places, thankfully, like the UK, you freeze the juice. Um, and what happens is is when you when you thaw the juice or when you when you press those frozen apples, the majority of the water component is bound up as ice crystals and you get this hyper sugar concentrated liquid that comes off, which you then ferment up to 10, 11, 12% alcohol, but there's still huge amounts of unfermented sugar. So it's a really rich, viscous drink, just like an ice wine, just like a dessert wine. Absolutely amazing as a, as a digestive poured all over your chocolate pudding. Oh, okay. That's so good to know. I will have to get some. Absolutely. So, so many patrons, I will list their name in an aside. Oh, hey, Claire Kostiki, Bonnie Page, Alan Kahn, Earl of Gramelkin, Miranda Panda, Dean Dryden, Jackie Silverman, and RJ Deutsch. Want to know, what is the best kind of apple to make cider from? That's, that's an impossible question to ask yeah. because every single apple, every single apple has its own unique flavors, properties, and characteristics. The thing is to understand what kind of flavor profile do you want? You know, if you were going to be a winemaker and it's like, I really like big sort of chewy tannic wines, you should be planting, you know, Malbec or something like that. If you plant Sauvignon Blanc, you're going to be really, really disappointed. And it's the same. It's like, if you want to have a lovely, fresh and crisp cider, then make it from Granny Smith. If if you want to have something that's really sort of rich and textured, use a classic English variety like Yarlington Mill. If you want to have something that is amazingly, you know, herbal and aromatic, use like a, a Golden Russet or something like that, or a Newtown Pippin, these amazing apples from, from the northeast of the U.S., so you kind of work backwards as to like, what kind of drink do I want to have? And therefore try to seek, you know, what kind of apple variety and makers, especially in the USA, you're, you know, you're ahead of the game compared to where they are in the UK, celebrating the variety and celebrating the process. They're putting it on the packaging. So the opportunity to be a more discerning consumer is better than it's ever been before. Oh, okay. I love the notion of like reverse engineering based on what you want. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, 
Alexandra and Castro Navarro wants to know, what's the strangest tasting cider you've ever had? And Kelly Pavlovich asks, what's the weirdest cider flavor or ingredient that you've tried or made or used? Any weird ones that stick out in your ciderology brain? Yeah, the, 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 the weirdest one was actually a perry that I made a few years ago. That <laughs> absolutely not by design, but by bad perry making, tasted like <laughs> sausages. Oh, it no. tasted it tasted like sausages <laughs> and it also had a little bit of like a sort of sulfidey thing which is like an egg character i basically had like sausages and eggs i had a fried breakfast <laughs> in liquid form meat farts um wasn't as pleasant as i had um endeavored to to achieve so that was probably like the weirdest sort of just you no know, natural flavors that came out of something in terms of like an actual intended flavored cider there's um there's a USA producer who recently made a tom yum soup flavored mm. cider. I think mm. they had gone they'd gone to Thailand, they'd had all the good food um and they and they'd come back and they put that mm. in the cider. Now my um um my co-host of a podcast that I run, I should probably name at this point, the Neutral Cider Hotel. Mm-hmm. You go check it out. <laughs> Available on all good platforms. Do check out neutralsiderhotel.com. Thank you very much. Um <laughs> Lovely Grant, he's he's less of a fan of the flavoured ciders. Um, he gets in a bit of a rage whenever we sort of talk. <laughs> and he, and he, he nearly sort of flew off. He nearly flew off the handle on this one. He he was he was fuming, but then he gets a bit grumpy about things like that anyway. So so yeah, the Tom Yum flavoured cider. The most amazing and lovely um, experience I ever had was that I lived in. Uh, so I lived in New Zealand for a bit, and and in Wellington, capital city. I lived in an area called um, Mount Victoria, and just behind there's all these woodlands. In fact, it, it was one, one of the places where they filmed for Lord of the Rings when, in the first movie, when um, all the little hobbits are having to hide from the ring wraith and they're hiding underneath the roots of the tree for the Lord of the Rings nerds out there. Mm-hmm. And so I used to go like walk around there and run around there. And I, when I, I, I left, but then I came back to New Zealand for, to go to a festival, and the cider maker gave me a cider, and I smelt it and it's like oh my god i've got the sensation of being back in in that city in that time in that place and i didn't realize that the cider had been flavored with with maple and pine needles and the pine needles had come from those trees on mount victoria wow and and it was a direct line to to that time in that place you know these these sensory characters they tap into our into our limbic system it's all about memory formation and and like a motive state and yeah that just took me straight back to that time and place so that was pretty cool oh okay so if you'd like to hear someone who really knows noses there is a rhinology episode which i will link on my website but just to recap it a lot of your taste is actually smells traveling up your snooter, which leads to your olfactory bulb in the front of your brain which takes that information and sends it just directly to your limbic system including Parts of it called the hippocampus and the amygdala. They deal with memory and emotions, which is why I think about a bowl of cider I had a few decades ago, and I still want to cry bittersweet tears. Oh, on that topic. A lot of people, Diana Burgess and uh, Mofo, they both wanted to know, how are some ciders dry versus sweet? Um, Why is there such a wide variety? And what's the process to get a sweet versus a dry cider? That's a really good question. And this is one of the big misnomers about cider is that, you know, cider is is a sweet drink. Uh, and the, and the, the, the fundamental nature of it is that 
Ostensibly, every single cider in the world will start its life as a bone dry cider, no sugar left at all, because the fermentation process is the yeast converting that sugar into alcohol. And the cider will stop fermenting when there is no more sugar for the yeast to ferment. So that's that's how cider starts its life. It's just that the majority of consumers don't want dry cider and have been conditioned that they don't want that. So sugar, generally sugar, sometimes it could be juice, is added back post-fermentation. And then the cider is stabilized via pasteurization or a, you know, a sterile filtration process that removes all the yeast. So there's no opportunity for that sugar to be re-fermented. Um, and that's the sweetness that you've got. So you can have bone dry cider because that's how, you know, that's how, that's how Pachamama wanted it intended. That is nature taking its course. If you want to have a, a fermented cider that is, that has some sugar in there, you've either got an added pack or you can do a couple of really fiddly processes to try and retain a residual natural sweetness, the primary one being called keeving, which is what the French classically do. And there's lots of history of it happening in the UK as well, which is a slightly convoluted process whereby you you remove the yeast and the nutrient from the juice at the beginning of the process and the resultant cider ferments very kind of slowly and develops quite rich flavors. Um, and then you can sort of control it and place it into a bottle where it finishes a little bit of fermentation. But the yeast is so weak and there's so little of it and it's so hungry because there's no nutrients <laughs> that that little bit of carbon dioxide that's built up in the bottle is enough to sort of, you know, m- make the yeast wave a little white flag. And it stops fermenting before <laughs> all of the sugar has been converted into alcohol. So you get a naturally sweeter, naturally lower ABV, naturally sparkling drink. Ah, oh, that's how they and- do it. That's how they do it. So that's why you said that that uh, the, the cider that you had in the Bolle in, in Paris, it smelled of, what did you say? It kind of um, like tiger lilies, oddly. Tiger lilies, amazing. But really rich, oily, intense, aromatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some sort of spicy carrots, some really juicy, just, yeah. They're, they're, they're wonderful drinks. And, you know, if you have the opportunity to to see any sort of classic Breton or Normandoise cidre, you should give it a go. There are a number of producers, especially in the Pacific Northwest, who did like a like a research trip over to over to Brit- uh, Brittany and Normandy a few years ago um you know that there are producers in the USA who are making who are making Keeve drinks and and also a big shout out to the Walden Cider House in the Hudson Valley which is where Angry Orchard who are the USA's largest producer this is where they get to make all their amazing fun creative experimentational stuff my friend Ryan Burke is the head cider maker and you know they've produced sensational Keeve ciders over the years that have been that have won competitions I'm a big fan of US cider I'm drinking one right now. It's called, it's from the Artifact Cider Project who are in Massachusetts. It's called Wolf at the Door, which is a really mega kind of hazy juice bomb with some sort of character in there. So yes, this French style cider, aka Cidre Boucher, is sold in corked bottles like champagne is. And it's the result of keeving, allowing the cider's pectins and calcium to form a brown cap at the top. And that clarifies the juice and develops a nice slow fermentation and a sparkle. The process in French, by the way, is known as defecation, which let me tell you, do not Google French defecation. No matter how many accents you copy and paste over the E's, just don't Google it. Don't Google it. Keeving's fine. Let's change the subject. Can I toss a couple more questions at you? 
Keep them coming. Let's okay. go. Okay. Allie Vessels, first time question asker, says, uh, can you home brew apple cider? Is it harder or easier than brewing something like beer or mead? And Celia Labonte says, one of my favorite things in the fall is to pick up some local fresh pressed unpasteurized local cider and forget about it in the back of my fridge until it gets fizzy. It always ends up tasting better than anything I can find in stores. Is my fridge magic? Or is there something about the fermentation process? Or is there just something about home fermentation? Can you DIY cider or is it best left to professionals? You you can DIY cider. The the tricky bit, as we talked about before, it's the same thing that people had three or four thousand years ago, is converting your apples into the juice. You need this bit of sort of kit and technology, you know, a mill and a press. And you can, and it has been done basically whack the apples with a very big pole in a in a bucket until they kind of go a bit mushy and then you can buy these little sort of home presses like like you would for making apple juice and they're good fun especially if you've got a big family or like a little sort of community group or neighborhood kind of thing they're really really good fun because you get everybody to bring the apples and you do it in one big go and it's kind of easy but if you don't want to invest in 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 the equipment then you know you do have all these fantastic farms where you you can purchase the unpasteurized, the still raw, live juice, which, as your um, as your caller in just described, I don't think it was the magic of the fridge. It's the magic of fermentation <laughs> has converted this juice uh, into cider in, in in maybe not in the most controlled kind of way, but obviously, hey, it kind of works. And you know, let's talk about juice content. The reason why it tastes amazing probably is because it tasted, had a real intensity of flavor profile. Not all ciders that you get around the world are made from just apple juice. The majority of your mainstream ciders, big kind of store-bought ciders, they will have, you know, they'll be fermented apple juice. But what often happens is that extra sugar gets added into the juice prior to fermentation. Remember, it's the sugar content that equates to the potential alcohol content. If you add some extra sugar into your juice, you're going to get potential higher alcohol, let's say 10 or 12% ABV. Mm. And what happens then is you could then dilute that that base cider with water. And hey, presto, you could double the literal volume of cider that you've produced at the same alcohol level as what you would have had naturally for the price of some sugar and some water. Mm. And why do that? <laughs> of course, it's all about the dollar, right? This mm-hmm. is all about, this is a very efficient way of making cider and a, and a very, ch- you know, a cheaper way of making cider. And I'm I'm not I'm not puritanical on this. I'm not holding a pitchfork and saying that every single cider must be made from just 100% apples. You know, nothing else can be done. That's that's not the attitude and approach that I have. But certainly in the UK, the minimum juice content in cider sits at 35%. So the majority of the cider can be water. And for me, that's too far down the line. Mm-hmm. If the first ingredient on your list is not apple juice is that a cider and i would say for me no in the usa it's 50 percent, and that's the level that i would advocate it being at you know that you've got some integrity in there so it just depends on what your kind of flavor profile is for me the most important thing is enabling the consumer to understand what's in the drink how is it made and let them make the decision on what kind of drink they're after mm-hmm. that makes tons of sense um yes or no question from emma ross are there bug bits in my cider probably bug bits yeah. well as in bits of bugs it's a bugs you know you um, smush and smush. i'm thinking gotta be yes there's gotta be a couple of little tiny bugs in there it, 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 it depends on whether you're 
getting from your you know your your professional cider maker or you're going to see old farmer brown down the lane who's making old leg bender you know Mm -hmm. don't worry about it gareth askey asked is cloudy apple cider the cider equivalent of orange juice with bits different types of bits but why is some cider cloudy is that the mother um, first of all, I want to address the fact that his name is Gareth Askey, who's asking a question. That's a brilliant name. Mr. Askey, keep asking away. Ask all the questions. I've thoroughly enjoyed that you've asked. Post-fermentation, yeast and large chunks of apple bits will drop to the bottom. But you will still have, with it within suspension, some bits of pectin and some just like natural appley bits. A bit like natural bits from orange juice what majority of makers would then do we'll, we'll put it through a filter you know we'll just put it through something that just like just sieves out like the the chunkier bits um of of apple constituents so the vast majority of ciders you get in the marketplace are like crystal clear it's very easy to put through a filter i've got nothing wrong with that i don't think it's a bad thing at all what i find interesting is when makers choose not to do that again it's very much a modern thing of the last 50 years the idea of uh, instilling the clarity in there as a probably as a as a marker of sort of quality and cleanliness and professionalism moving away from that sort of more rustic and traditional kind of viewpoint certainly there's been um a bit of a drive of again from a sort of commercial point of view makers using that as a way of bringing like a new product into the marketplace right we've got a cider which is just you know fizzy and then we've got like the sweeter version what do we do now um let's do the cloudy version yes mm. come on you know <laughs> This is all part of the amazing diversity that exists for cider, that, you know, different ciders, different fruit, different varieties, different fermentation processes, vessels for different consumers on different occasions. Oh, well, I'm hoping from a little bit of filtration to flim flam, Robin Cohen wants to know, I was recently told that in times before refrigeration and indoor water, hard cider was given to the kids to drink. Is this flim flam? It's true. It is absolutely true. Um, you know, in in the in the same way that in various parts of certainly British history, that the the beer was um, was considerably safer than the drinking water. You know, think about the the state of the sewerage system or lack of sewerage system, in, mm-hmm. in, especially as the population in as cities started to grow by having this. The fermentation process is amazing. Uh, at killing off bugs and beasts so even at relatively low alcohol levels so you know it, it, it is genuinely true in fact um i'll have to remember the year i think it's in the 15th century maybe the 13th century there's there's there is a record of babies being baptized inside it in the uk because the water quality was so poor actually that was from last week no um it's it, yeah so you know that's that is absolutely true oh, okay Two more questions. Sarah Tully says, I'm a cider girl, born and raised, English by birth, and I now live in Canada, Mm. where luckily the cider industry has boomed in the last 10 years, probably Mm. because of you, Gabe. Um, She -hmm. says, I've drank many a can of cider, but once in a blue moon, I get one that, well, smells like a fart or rotten egg. Tastes almost as bad and is flat. Why does this happen? What is going on? So the the farty egginess is those are those are the characters of these sulfide compounds, and so these these are natural compounds that are released by by yeast when they are not very happy, stressed yeast. So this is normally 
um, a food issue. So they haven't got, so the, the yeast is converting the sugar into alcohol, but yeast has got to eat as well, right? So it, <laughs> it needs to have these nutrients. It needs to have some nitrogen. It needs to have some B vitamins in order to easily function properly and convert all that sugar into alcohol. If it hasn't got that, sometimes there's a bit of a breakdown. Sometimes if if it's too hot, and then the process uh, it gets all a bit too much to the yeast and it you know, just throws a bit of a dirty protest, basically. <laughs> or sometimes if the temperature goes kind of like too cold, like partway through the fermentation, it can stop and these sulfide characters can remain. It is a bit of an issue. It doesn't need to happen. It's one of those things like, like having vinegar you know, within your cider. It's something that is easily averted. It doesn't need to happen, but, but, it, but it is something that does, uh, that does come around. Yeah. Maybe if it happens, you should just treat it like it was supposed to happen. Make a wish, crack open a different bottle, you know? You could do that. You know, one of the things is that if if that was a beer, consumers and the drinks trade have the confidence to know that's not right. Yeah. And would do, you know, would, would, would get in touch with the, with the brewery or they take it back to the bar. People don't know, like, is, is, is the cider supposed to taste <laughs> yeah. like that? And so... If they end up thinking, oh, I, I think that is how it's supposed to taste. Man, cider smells of farts. That's bad. I, therefore, I don't like cider. That's a really, really bad thing. So if you smell that, take it back to yeah. where and, and get another one. But make a wish. And make a wish. Yeah. And make a lucky. wish, obviously. Consider Indeed. it lucky. Um, Sarah Hoover wants to know, if I were to go to a store looking for the best possible cider, again, I'm going to editorialize that and say, I know it's objective, but um, what should Sarah look for? Any hidden info we should know about? So what I would say is just check out your local producers. There are, there is over a thousand makers in the USA today and in uh, being made in basically every single state, maybe not Alaska, I'm going to say possibly, (laughs) but everywhere else, you know, cider, um, please prove me wrong, somebody that there is cider being made everywhere. Just go and, and seek out, go and seek out your local, but there are, there are some of the best cider makers in the world uh, within the USA. You're, you're based in, in California, right, mm-hmm. Ali? Is that correct? Yep. So you need to check out, you know, people like Tanaki Cider, who are in Santa Cruz, people like Tilted Shed, who are in Sonoma. Absolutely fantastic, you know, makers there. And then as you get into in Pacific Northwest, people like Reverend Nats, then you sort of get into... Michigan, you've got people like Uncle John's Hard Cider in Pennsylvania. You've got Big Hill Cider Works um, and Plowman Cider and, you know, New York. Um, Eves and Eden, uh, well, sorry, Eves are in uh, sort of Finger Lakes area, Eden and Vermont. You know, we're talking about drinks that are exuding all of the quality and elegance of wine. Uh, there's just there's just so many fantastic producers out there. So just go to the store and drink loads of cider, I think is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I will post links on my website, you sweet thirsty people or here's an idea you could put on clothes and you could leave the house you've got cider bars we don't really have cider bars over here, but almost every single like city has got a cider bar you've got the 101 tap house in in la you've got the san francisco cider house portland's got like five cider houses alone mm-hmm. it's crazy <laughs> uh, if if you're in dc do head to ancho um it's one of the best cider experiences that you'll have you know anywhere um anywhere in the world so it's it's not just that sort of at home thing. It's like getting out there and sort of seeking it in any city that you are. It's 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 an awesome experience. Oh, what about the last questions I always ask? What about the worst thing about cider? It can't all be roses. What sucks? Uh, that that there is 
amongst um maybe amongst the amongst the community a, a, a feeling of whether it be inferiority to other drinks or maybe in in some instances a little bit of gatekeeping around so like cider can only be this and we can never kind of change it's like you know come on people like just like be open to the opportunity and i really i use the word opportunity a lot because because i see it um and that there are so many consumers today who who are interested in so many different types of drinks. We're less sort of like siloed in terms of, well, I'm just a beer drinker. Well, I'm just a wine drinker. I'm just a spirits drinker. It's like, no, no, you could be interested in interesting drinks and cider very much sits within that sort of spectrum and with that opportunity. And so the thing that annoys me the most is that cider doesn't have the, the reputation or the standing that I think it deserves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have considerable faith that we will get there. I, I think that you are doing all of the work to get us there. I'm calling it now. Cider's, cider's it, man. That's hot. What about your favorite, favorite thing about cider? Can you even name one thing? Um, I suppose there's, there's two things, which I know is not one thing. Um, <laughs> but par- partly it's the, it's the people. It's the community element. There, there is a there is a community of cider people, mm-hmm. and in 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 a UK context, we got together for the first time just at the weekend for this event called the Bristol Cider Salon, which is which I sort of helped helped to co organise along with the wonderful Martin Barkley from Pilton Cider and Tom Oliver from Oliver Cider and Perry. And it was in the the city of Bristol, which is which I live just outside of in the southwest of England, real heartland area. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah, it, makers, enthusiasts, and drinkers all getting together, sharing some drinks. And it's a really cool thing. It's something that we all sort of share. It's something that we're passionate about. Cider people are just like quite nice people, <laughs> and, and, and 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 interesting people. So there's definitely this. There's this community, whether it be cider, but also again coming back to the sense of place and and the, the geographical community. I love I love the fact that there's you know makers in the area that I'm from, and you know there's there's a v- apple variety called uh, a, the the Dimmock Red, a cider apple variety, mm-hmm. and you know I made ten liters of Dimmock Red not last year, two two years ago, and well, I, I think it tastes all right. Um, <laughs> it's a little it's a little bit it's a little little bit farmy on the nose entered it into a competition didn't get a medal not not bitter not bitter much <laughs> um but you know ultimately i don't care it doesn't matter i just feel so grateful that here is something that apple variety was being recorded as being an awesome apple 500 years ago mm-hmm. and that i know that that like my granddad used to make you know cider and perry on on this on this this farm where my mum grew up and to it's, it's not in the family anymore, but but you know I made a Perry from the same tree that I know that he would have done, and he died before I was born. And there's, there's nothing sad about this, other than just like it's just awesome that I have this have this connection through this through this action. I feel slightly responsible, but more just kind of celebratory. So it's mm-hmm. just it's just something that really gets into your bones. I think. Wow, that's really amazing. You give so much context to cider, and I love that that is one way for other people to appreciate it as well. It's not just something that tastes good, that you sit around and drink, or if you've had a hard day and you absolutely need this to unwind. It's not It's not about that. And I, I love that that's kind of the message that you're, you're spreading is that cider really is an art to be enjoyed, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. Oh. 
So ask dry experts scrumpy questions because earnestly they are just bubbly fonts of knowledge and passion. And one day we're all going to be eaten by worms anyway. So do whatever you want. Learn what you want. Find out more about Gabe Cook at thesiderologist.com, naturally. You can look for him on social media as The Ciderologist. Pick up his books, Ciderology is his first one, and then he just released Modern British Ciders. And his podcast is Neutral Cider Hotel. A donation went to Tiny Changes. All those links are in the show notes. If you liked this episode, send it to a friend. There are a bunch more links at alleyboard.com slash ologies slash Ciderology. We are at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Allie Ward, just one L in my name on Instagram and Twitter. Come be our friends. Thank you to longtime friend Aaron Talbert, who is the admin on the Ologies podcast Facebook group full of great people. Ologiesmerch.com is where to go to get t-shirts and totes and hoodies and masks and all that stuff. And that is handled by sisters, Bonnie Dutch and Shannon Feltis of the comedy podcast You Are That. Emily White of The Wardery makes all of our transcripts. She's great. She's available for hire if you need transcripts for anything. Uh, bleeping is done by Caleb Patton. And bleeped episodes and transcripts are available at alleyward.com slash ologies extras. There's a link in the show notes. Thank you, of course, to Noel Dilworth and Susan Hale for the ologies business they do behind the scenes and social media help. And of course, to the incomparable Jared Sleeper who is both sweet and dry and a bit scrumpy, and to Zeke Rodriguez-Thomas and Stephen Ray Morris, who both help with Smology's episodes. More of those are coming soon. Thank you to Nick Thorburn, who wrote and performed the theme music, and happy belated birthday to Dr. Mike Natter. Also, it was my pop's birthday last week. Uh, if you stick around, I burden you with a secret from my dark, deep soul. Okay, this week's secret was I was out of underwear because laundry just does not do itself. And it's been a busy week. And then I found a new pack of undies in the linen closet. And I was like, yes, I totally forgot I bought them. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't always wash things before I wear them. Jared is horrified at this. He washes everything before it touches his body. But I'm like, eh, it's not like someone in the factory wore them around all day. I was like, well, you know. It's chemicals. I don't care. I don't care. I don't know if wearing clothes without washing them first is like cool and chill of me because I don't care or if it's repulsive. But it hasn't killed me yet and I've got bigger fish to fry. Okay, bye bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, there are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.